Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Zooming In on ID. Um, we're trying to get a chance to get to know some of the scholars in LSE's International Development Department, what they work on, and what light, if any, that work sheds on the COVID-19 crisis that we're all studying and thinking and suffering um, about at the moment. So with me today is Ken Shadlin, who's the head of uh, the department, uh, head of the International Development Department. Hi, Ken. Hello, Duncan. Um, what I would like to start with is to give a sense of who you are. Tell us a bit about your background, how you ended up working on international development and the subjects that you, uh, you chose. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to do this. Um, I mean, I did all my education in the U.S. I grew up in the U.S. I did my Ph.D. in political science. But when I was in political science, I was always interested in development and had a big interest in sort of interdisciplinary approaches to development. So I hung out with a lot of economists, sociologists, geographers. And so I always had sort of a broad interdisciplinary view of the world, which made me a bit of a weirdo in political science circles. My first couple jobs were in the U.S., and then a job opened up at LSE in international development, which was then called Destin in 2002. And it was a strange thing, because I had never been to the U.K. in my entire life. Um, literally, I switched planes once in Heathrow, but you know, you don't leave the airport. So literally, the first time I ever came to Britain in my entire life was in January of 2002, when I came to interview for a job in what was then Destin. And um, I just, I loved the place. I loved LSE. I loved what was then the Institute. And... Uh, I've stayed here and made my life here. So tell me a bit, I'm not letting you off the hook that easily, okay? So tell me a bit about what's the Latin America part of your life? Whereabouts in the US did you grow up? I grew up outside Chicago. Okay. I got a interested- long, A long Latin, way from Latin America then. Like a long way from Latin America. I had no ties to Latin America. There's no Latin American heritage in my family. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I got interested in Latin America Basically, when I was at university, this was in the 1980s, and the U.S. was basically fighting wars throughout Central America, and I just got very interested in the region. I learned Spanish actually fairly late in my life. I didn't learn Spanish till well into my teens, early 20s. Um, I'm a pretty good Spanish speaker. I mean, I think I'm a fluent Spanish speaker, but I clearly have the accent of a guy from Chicago who learned it in his 20s. My accent is atrocious, but I can, I'm, I'm basically bilingual in Spanish if you get over my accent. But that's where I got interested in Latin America. And then when I went to um, graduate school, uh, I was actually interested in things like, I was interested in Latin America, but I had no particular reason why. I ended up, I ended up, I thought I was gonna do research in, the, in South America, because I actually spent a lot of time, I spent time before I went to graduate school living in Colombia. And I was working in the coffee sector in Colombia. I was doing extension work and I was picking coffee. So when I went to Berkeley, which I went to my PhD, I thought I was going to work on sort of Latin American politics and rural politics in the Andes. And I ended up basically for a strain, because of the advice of my PhD supervisor, I ended up doing a topic that was completely different. I ended up working on state business relations in Mexico, which is about as far away from rural politics in the Andes as you can get, literally about as far away. And um, that's where I was. And... So was there a particular moment of, uh, in Latin America, a moment of conversion, a moment when something that really shaped how you see politics and political science ever since? I'm not sure if there was a particular moment, really. I mean, when I, when I started studying Latin America, it was the time of the debt crises of the 1980s. 
in many countries, transitions from authoritarian rule, the end of, demo, end of dictatorships, it just it was just a fascinating region. To, and there were all the, the, the wars in Central America that were thankfully coming to an end in the 1990s. It was just a fascinating thing to study. Okay. And you somehow ended up being a health specialist. So talk us through the, the flip from coffee to drugs, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, I could help. I, that, so there's a, there's a missing step in there is that when I, when I finished doing all the research that I was doing on, I, the work on government business relations ended up starting, ended up being about democratization. That's the way I ended up framing it. It was about democratization and representation. And then when I finished that, I mean, I wrote a book on that. I wrote a lot of articles on that. Like a lot of people, I was looking for sort of my, my next big project. And I actually got interested in the topic of intellectual property. And that's what that, and that's really Explain about- Explain that a bit, please. So intellectual property are the rules that governments create that establish ownership of knowledge and information. And how countries set up their intellectual property systems affect incentives for creating knowledge and innovation, but also the terms on which people, companies, schools, healthcare systems access knowledge and innovation. So it's about the politics of the politics of ownership and control of ideas and knowledge. And so I got really interested in that. And then when I started to study that, I this I basically then started to study the pharmaceutical industry. So I sort of became, I became a health person because I became obsessed with pharmaceuticals, but I became obsessed with pharmaceuticals actually first and foremost because of my general interest in politics over the ownership and use of knowledge. So why are pharmaceuticals such a big deal in the discussion on intellectual property? So one reason why pharmaceuticals is a big deal is that if you were to look at all of the economic sectors in the world, they're the ones that care the most about intellectual property. And so there are surveys that have been done on that for now for 40 years in which they survey sort of managers and they ask them to what extent do you, is intellectual property important for your business model? And pharmaceuticals is, is the first. And the reason why pharmaceuticals is the first is because pharmaceuticals are generally very, very easy to copy. And so if I have a pharmaceutical that you can copy very easily, I want to figure out a way to stop you from copying it. And I can't stop you from copying it, but I can make it illegal for you to copy it. And the way I make it illegal for you to copy it is having intellectual property protecting my technology. And that matters more in pharmaceuticals than any other sector in the world. Um, and, you know, when I'm not at LSE, I work for Oxfam. And one of the big things that Oxfam has been doing over the years is complaining about intellectual property rules and saying this is preventing people in poor countries getting access to cheap medicines because it's basically a sort of protection for the pharmaceutical companies and enables them to, to keep prices high. Is that the way you see things or am I being NGO simplistic? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think that I see things terribly differently from that. I mean, as you can imagine, I think, I think there's a lot of nuance there, but I do... That's generally, I think, actually an accurate description of the world. Where I would just take a step back and say is that this whole idea of intellectual property in pharmaceuticals is brand new. And one of the things that I always remind people, and I say brand new in world historical terms, is that if we were to have this conversation, Duncan, 45 years ago, we wouldn't be able to do it on Zoom because Zoom didn't exist then. But if we were to have this conversation 45 years ago, 
But what happened then is that if you invented a new machinery or anything, you could get in a patent, intellectual property protection on it, in any country of the world. If you invented a new drug in the 1970s, you could have gotten a patent on that drug in the US, the UK, West Germany, and France. And that's it. Nowhere else on the planet Earth. And what happened in the 1980s is that patents on drugs became available in most wealthy countries, but not in any poor countries. Then, that means, then in the 1990s, you have the World Trade Organization, which requires that all countries grant patents on drugs. That is a major world historical shift. That, that shift is what, I, what I'm calling sort of the globalization of pharmaceutical patenting. Changes the entire panorama of development. And that's sort of what all of my work for the last 15 or 20 years has been about that shift. We went from a world in which drugs were only patentable in a few countries in the 70s to a world in which drugs could receive intellectual property in the global north, but not anywhere in the global south, to a world in which now you can get a patent on a drug anywhere in the world except for the very, very, very poorest countries. And so it's the reaction to that that, I, that most of my research is about. Okay, just before we go on to COVID, I'm gonna ask you a really dumb question because that's what I specialize in. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think that from a development perspective, it's a bad thing. I don't have a problem saying that. I know it's a really broad statement. I think from a development perspective, it's a bad thing. My research, however, though, has been trying to push people away from grand narratives about, oh, it's a horrible thing across the board and focus people on diversity. So I think that what we need, that there's this big shift and now you can get patents anywhere in the world, but how strong that patent right is and the way the pharmaceutical patent systems function in every country differs. And it's that diversity among developing countries within this big overarching set of changes, but, with, but within that big overarching set of changes, the diversity among countries that for me is what gets me up in the morning and that I focus on and that my research is all about. So generally speaking, if we could turn back the clock and get rid of pharmaceutical patents in developing countries, I would have no objection to doing that. I wouldn't necessarily get rid of pharmaceutical patents all over the world, that's a different thing. But if we can get rid of pharmaceutical patents in the global south, I would have no objection to doing that. But I'm actually, my research is not actually trying to fight that fight. My research is trying to say, given this is the world that we've been, we've been con we're confronting, what is the diversity within it and how can countries best manage the challenges they face living within this new world. Which brings us lovely and nicely to COVID-19. So you're looking very closely at the search for vaccines at the pharmaceutical response to COVID-19. How does it look to you? So I'm looking very closely at the search for vaccines. I'm also looking very closely at the search for treatments. And remember, these things are really are important and they're different. Vaccines are the things that we take in order to prevent us from getting ill in the first place. Treatments are the things that we take when we're ill, and they prevent us from dying. Um, they they may not make if they might make the thing go away, in which case they're cures. But we're good and we're happy enough if they just basically treat us and prevent us from dying. Think about HIV/AIDS. HIV/AIDS does not have a vaccine, but it has treatments. Which is going better at the moment, the search for treatments or the search for vaccines? Well, we don't have either. The search for treatments is, we don't have either, and there's no expectation that we're gonna have either within the next few months. Vaccines is a very, very long, it's a longer process. 
And the reason why vaccines are getting a lot of attention is because there's a lot of effort into vaccines are preferable. We'd rather basically not ever get the disease in the first place than have to treat it. And there's a lot of effort into compressing the time scale in which vaccine development would take place. As opposed to treatments, what we have is we have a lot of drugs that are out there that are out there for other purposes. And what pharmaceutical firms and researchers are doing are trying to repurpose those drugs. They're out there for one purpose. Maybe they're useful for COVID as well. So we're, we're likely to get a treatment before we get a vaccine because there's some of these drugs that are out there that might get repurposed for COVID. And they've already been tested and approved, so that's quicker. Yeah, so you could, so if they're already on the market, that means they've already been approved for something else. We know how to manufacture them at scale. We know that they're safe. We know about their side effects. We know a lot about them. What we don't know is if they're any good for COVID. Okay, and finally, because we're coming to the end of our 15 minute slot, how does I, intellectual property feed into the search for vaccines and treatments? So intellectual property fits in in all sorts of ways. One is that a lot of actors are interested in investing their time and resources in it because they think if they get intellectual property on it, they might be able to then sell this drug and treatment exclusively. That's the part that I think has a lot of folks alarmed is precisely like what the price of it might be if intellectual property makes a new treatment or a new drug out of the reach of people, of governments, healthcare providers, and individuals paying out of pocket. So this actually then gets directly back to my work. Countries, when I say that countries vary in their patent systems, they all have drug patent systems, but they all look different. Well, when there's a new treatment that becomes available, how the effectiveness of the government in negotiating the drug prices with whoever owns that patent on that drug is a function of its intellectual property system. It's not just whether it has patents, but it's a function of how its patent system works. So the diversity that I am obsessed with, the diversity among countries or between countries within this overarching convergence, that diversity is gonna matter a lot for how much the drugs cost in any given country when we eventually get these drugs. And two quick um, sort of questions on, on to, to, to wrap up. One is that, it seems that uh, watching the news, which is all I do on this t topic, I don't see the big pharmaceutical companies being very engaged. It, it all seems to be sort of labs at universities and small players. Are the big players getting engaged in this or are they sitting it out? The big players are completely engaged in the treatment side because they're the ones who have the drugs. So they're the, on the treatment side, it's, it's the big players. Okay, and on the vaccine? On the vaccine side, most of, the, most of the basic research is being done in labs, by, in research labs, exactly, not in firms. Um, but, when the, but once, as soon as any research lab has a vaccine that looks like it's potentially useful, they immediately then license it out to the pharmaceutical firm because the pharmaceutical firms are the ones who have the experience with the massive scaling up of production and the distribution. So yeah, so the, so the pharmaceutical firms will be involved. Can I, just, yeah. can I just make one comment here about, I, I think that it's really important that we understand like the challenges that we're facing. And that is, if we have a new treatment, that treatment is necessary for anybody, anybody who has the disease, you need a treatment for. So what do we need? Maybe we, you know, let's say there's a drug out there that you have to take it for five days in a row. 
let's say that there's 5 million people who have COVID-19. So you have to produce 25 million doses of it. That's a lot of drug, but we can do that. If we get a vaccine, we basically need 8 billion or 10 billion doses. That's a scaling up. That's a challenge to scaling up. That's, I think it's, I'm not, I don't mean to exaggerate when I say that's like nothing that we've ever faced in the world before in terms of a health crisis. How we're gonna basically scale up to eight to 10 billion doses. That requires public researchers from laboratories. It requires firms. It requires governments. It requires action by inter and international organizations. All four have to be involved. And do you see that coming? I see seeds of it. And I see a lot of tension. And I see seeds. It would be a lot, this whole thing would be a lot better if we weren't at the same time having the World Health Organization under siege. Because we need an international organization to coordinate this, step, this effort, to coordinate between the researchers in the labs, the private firms, and the governments. And right now, we don't have that organization. The first place you would look would be the World Health Organization. But the World Health Organization is under siege and not in a position to coordinate that right now. So that's one of the things that I'm very worried about. Ken Chadland, that's been absolutely fantastic. I now understand what you do all day, which is really helpful. And I hope it's uh, helpful for the listeners as well. Um, and I think what I get from that is the importance of nuance and diversity rather than these broad brush statements that people make about things. And that is what scholarship can, can bring to the table. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Duncan. It's been a pleasure.